0: Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com spoiler.
1: Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Joss Whedon's Cabin in the Woods. This is actually an unusual spoiler special. This is my first ever, I believe, spoiler special on demand. It's, it's quite belated. This movie actually came out three weeks ago or so. Uh, I reviewed it. I had a spoiler special planned with my friend Dan Coyce down in D.C., And he had to back out at the last minute, was not able to to see the movie in time to tape it. And so we sort of let it go by the wayside. And then to my immense surprise, I started getting all these requests, like on Facebook and on Twitter. And people were writing in to say, why aren't you spoiling Cabin in the Woods? It's the ultimate spoilable movie, which is completely true. It's a movie that's utterly based on twists and it's very hard to write anything about without spoiling. And so now, three weeks later, by popular demand, I've gotten Chris Wade. Um, Hi, Chris. Hello, Dana. You are an associate producer at Slate V and also the producer of the spoiler special most of the time. And uh, you graciously agreed to come in and talk Joss Whedon with me for a solid hour today. We just talked about his new movie, The Avengers, and now we're going to go back and retroactively spoil Cabin in the Woods.
0: And I knew my feverish watching of the entirety of Buffy in in a six-month span would pay off (laughs) Yeah,
1: see, finally. So let me go with the proviso that it's been almost a month since I saw this movie. Okay, so at this point, a lot of the details may have slipped from my mind. I don't know how long it is since you saw the movie, I a week or I two. Saw, yeah,
0: like last Sunday or something.
1: But there have been things about Cabin in the Woods. I've had many conversations about it because it's the kind of movie you have conversations about, right? You ask someone if they've seen it, and then there's a lot of things to revisit because it is so twist-based and so also easy to find sort of plot holes or, you know, or, or, or raise questions about. And there's something about this movie that still sticks with me like... I admire it as an experiment. I think it's audacious and bold, and it was a lot of fun to watch. And I really appreciated, for example, that it was short and sweet. It didn't overstay its welcome. There was a lot about it that was quite fun. But on the whole, I would say it felt like a failed experiment to me. And I kind of want you to to talk me through the parts of it that worked better for you than for me.
0: Um it's funny because I think we both have very similar overall opinions of it. I like that it tried to do something new and weird and um, play around with the the kind of peculiar trend of horror movies ever since I guess Scream came out to delve into this like navel gazing. Like, what are the rules of horror movie? And then the other trend, which I believe they specifically said that this was a reaction against of, like the torture porn horror movie of just like doing increasingly gruesome stuff to pretty people.
1: Yeah, let's talk about the, the, before we get into the plot summary. Let's talk about what kind of movies this is 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 making fun of, right? I mean, yeah. it clearly is a sp- sp- spoof isn't quite the right spoof isn't quite the right word, but it clearly is you know a movie that's that's built around mm-hmm. the poking of affectionate fun and mockery at genre movies but what are those genre movies obviously one of them is the sort of last girl slasher movie right
0: i would say of the wide array of horror movies it's kind of like the monster horror movie where there's like a a person or group of people who are fighting some kind of vaguely supernatural force um as opposed to like a more traditional like slasher movie or you know a hostile type horror movie which is like you know somebody having the audacity to go on vacation and then getting right. slaughtered for it
1: right it's 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 not just plain old human on human violence there's yeah. a supernatural element but then of course it also has elements of the truman show or yeah. movies that are about kind of social experiments and social control
0: i mean it's it's great from the beginning because it's you know the the first scene you come in on these two guys just like kind of getting ready for work in the morning like what you know white collar like short sleeve collared shirt tie drinking coffee getting in like they're like in a bunker space it's like ill-defined they get right they sort of look cart. like
1: nasa engineers right? yeah exactly it's, and, and it's we should mention it's richard jenkins and, and bradley whitford
0: mm-hmm. who do you have this like great like boring technician repartee and like oh you're gonna come over this weekend oh no my my wife is inviting all these people over i hate when she has a dinner party something like that and it's like this kind of Humorous, you like the character's boring conversation as they're like speeding off in this little golf cart in this bunker, and as the conversation winds down, and you just get the huge red horror title of cabin in the woods over these two nerdy guys.
1: So yeah, so then, then throughout the movie, we're going to cut between Bradley Whitford and Richard Jenkins as these kind of bureaucratic engineers in some sort of NASA-type operation. It soon turns out to be something much bigger and more sinister than that. And a very conventional horror movie narrative about five teenagers, college students, who decide to go to a cabin in the woods where one of them, I guess, one of them has a cousin who owns this cabin. So let's go to this remote cabin in the middle of nowhere, despite all the creepy signals along the way yeah. they keep telling us to turn back.
0: And it it's funny cuz the um the kind of commentary on this is that these technician guys it becomes increasingly apparent are kind of controlling the situation and they're the ones commenting like is creepy hillbilly who's going to warn them that that cab- cabin's no good, ready to go? All right cue creepy hillbilly warning them that the cabin's no good, and then you see that scene.
1: Right. So it's not that the kids are, are aware of what's going on, mm-hmm. right? It's that there is an entity outside of them that's aware that they're in yeah. some kind of horror movie scenario. And to me, that reveal happened too soon and and too much, right? Yeah. The, the, what the relationship was between the two white-collar guys in the, in the control room and the kids going to the cabin is revealed in maybe the first ten minutes of the movie or something pretty yeah. explicitly, and it is essentially some sort of dystopic Truman Show situation, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So everything is being staged. The kids are being filmed. There are cameras in every corner of this cabin. And for reasons that aren't clear until a little bit further into the movie, um, these, these two guys are sinisterly managing the entire situation.
0: That being said, while I, I also agree that that stuff kind of undercut the actual horror movie that was going on above them, uh, I did find most of those scenes uh, pretty entertaining um, as these guys like go through this job it like becomes clear that it's like something they do like once a year and it's like a high stress situation for everybody and they're trying to do it with military precision and but they're also like old hands at it it's like a classic like guy on the job relationship
1: yeah scene by scene I mean the dialogue is really sharp in this mm-hmm. movie scene by scene it's, it's quite funny I had a real problem with the pacing of it I feel like yeah. in spite of the fact that it was an hour and a half long maybe at most it, it started to drag toward the middle because I felt that it was weighed down by its own conceits
0: yeah exactly I mean it would have been great I loved starting in that – with the scene with those guys because not a lot is revealed in that opening scene where they're, like, just arriving at work. But, I yeah, I agree that the structure of them controlling the situation was revealed so quickly that it became heavy-handed almost immediately. It would have been great if you saw that first scene. You're like, well, what does that have to do with anything? And, like, 40 minutes later, you, like, came back and kind of – then started slowly realizing what their relationship to the super plot was.
1: It would have increased the menace. I mean, I don't think that Joss Whedon didn't seem particularly interested in suspense or scariness mm-hmm. in making this movie. And maybe I know I've heard a lot of defenders of the movie saying, well, that wasn't the point. It's not supposed to be a scary mm-hmm. movie. But I couldn't help thinking of somebody like Sam Raimi who can make movies that are scary and funny and really intensely both, intensely scary and intensely funny at the same time. And if a movie is not going to be invested in scaring you at all then you know it maybe should not spend so much time on scary archetypes it seemed really clear by about midway through that what this movie really is about more than will these five kids make it or you know will these two guys in the control room be able to meet their quota of horror slasher deaths or whatever was what's fear right and yeah. how does fear work on the viewer how do we identify with characters and feel fear on their behalf mm-hmm. right and it was almost like a kind of abstract treatise on fear but it wasn't that great at generating fear
0: yeah and i had heard going in this is like you know one of those movies that you hear a lot about, especially if you're like a horror fan and you're like, oh, I got it. This is going to be like the horror movie this year. You got to see it. That I'd heard that going in that it was like it had this twist and was also legitimately scary. So I was going on being like, oh, great, it gets to be smart and meta and scary as well. But it, I, yeah, I, it did not deliver on the actual scares and the the monster thing. They act, they resurrect this clan of like pain loving. Hillbilly zombies.
1: Right, so that's the middle section yeah. of the movie. That's what you think the bad guy is going to be for the whole middle section of yeah. the movie, right? Um, after some initial kind of red herring faux scares at the cabin, the real scare emerges, and it's sort of summoned by the kids having gone down into the basement in this scary cabin. And uh, and one of them, whose name is Dana, she's the mm-hmm. main female character. She's kind yes. of the, the the virgin girl or quasi virgin, right? Is reading from from a, a diary, an old diary that they find in mm-hmm. the basement. And it's all this weird, creepy, zombie farm girl kind of slasher family. And then that family then emerges from the ground, right? So yeah. essentially brought up by the reading, right? Yeah. But actually by Brad Whitford and, and Richard Jenkins in the control room. Who, and they're who, stalking yeah. the kids for the middle part of the movie. But then the big twist comes in, I guess I would say maybe two-thirds of the way through That's or something, right? Getting the third act. When you discover, and you can talk through that twist, since you've seen it more recently than me, that the zombie family is in fact sort of a front, right? The Mm -hmm. zombie family does actually manage to kill off two of the characters. Is that right?
0: There's five of them, and it it gets three of them, right? But one of them comes back? I think the zombies, if I remember correctly, the zombies kill two of the characters straight up. The
1: slut, of course, dies first. Yeah, the
0: slut dies first. Chris Hemsworth, uh, another overlap between Avengers and... Uh, This, besides Joss Whedon, gets killed. The smart guy.
1: He's the jock. Chris Hemsworth is the jock. Yes, the
0: jock. Chris Hemsworth is going to jump a ravine (laughs) to get to the other side of a collapsed tunnel to save them and jumps his motorcycle heroically directly into a force field that has been set up by these control guys and just, like, explodes in midair and,
1: right. and falls. So that And that's an important turning yeah. point in the movie because it's when sort of the character's world and the Bradley Whitford, Richard Jenkins world yeah. converges, right? And they realize that they're in some sort of orchestrated mm-hmm. faux reality and yeah. that they're trapped there.
0: Um, so then from there, the smart kid, the brain, uh, gets killed pretty. I, I mean, the, the problem is, is that in playing with these setups that you recognize from horror movies since scream like called attention to it it there it just felt so rote like there was no real terror in the hillbilly persecutors and you were just try it was just kind of like waiting until these two worlds that you're like okay what's going on in this underground world who's gonna survive from the upper world when are these two things gonna meet So this middle section kind of dragged and then it leads to the last section, which I believe our opinions are the most different on (laughs) –
1: Okay, so Chris, before you go any further, I'm going to stop you for a quick word from our sponsor, Audible.com. We're delighted to be sponsored by Audible, a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They offer more than a hundred thousand titles, which you can play on any device you like, including whatever you're listening to us on right now. And right now, they have a special offer for spoiler listeners: thirty day free trial plus a free audiobook if you sign up at our special URL, AudiblePodcast.com/slash/spoiler. So you can choose anything you want from Audible's vast library, and it's really fun to just get on there and noodle around and see what you can find. But we like to recommend something usually that's at least tangentially related to our topic of the day. And so I was thinking about my theory that Cabin in the Woods is all about fear and the psychology of fear and was just kind of entering the word fear into Audible and seeing what I came up with. And I got the book uh, Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker. I don't know if you know this book. I read it back in the day, probably, I don't know, 10 years ago when it came
0: out. I don't, but I would say I'm a fan of fear theory.
1: Well, Gavin Becker is a, um, he's basically a, a kind of a consultant on on violence and psychology of violence. I think he's worked with the CIA and all kinds of, he's like a professional witness at trials about, about, about violence. And this is essentially a book about how to avoid violence by trusting your own fear. And it's, I think it was initially aimed at women and girls and that it's sort of like a rape prevention, self-help book of some kind. But it actually does kind of end up being a theory of fear. It's a fascinating book. I mean, even if you're not a big reader of sort of, um, you know, self-help manuals or something, that's not really a fair classification of what it is. But it is sort of pop psychology, really good pop psychology about essentially how to defuse violent situations by trusting your fear. It's actually something that had the protagonists in Cabin in the Woods read it, you know, we would have no movie because they would know how to defuse yeah, their kind monsters. Like,
0: that sounds pretty much like the manual for surviving a horror movie because that's always, that's always the rule is that if you, if you don't follow your curiosity, if you actually do what logic dictates, you'll you'll – survive, but nobody, right? nobody ever does.
1: Right. And if something's fishy, you pay attention to its fishiness. And that's what he's really good at nailing, and the ways in which people, whether it's to sort of put on a brave front, or because oh, they think, oh, I must be crazy, or I'm just influenced by horror movies or something, that people, again and again, when he interviewed these people who had survived like horrible things happening to them, urban violence and stuff, they would just say, oh, I felt that something was fishy from the moment I left the bank or whatever, but I ignored it because I thought that I must be crazy.
0: So if you're uh, planning a trip out to your own isolated cabin in the woods, uh, this Memorial Day.
1: Right. You uh, might not bring... want to go down into the basement and read the, the Latin phrase in the girl's yeah, diary. Yeah, you
0: should uh, download your copy of Gavin Becker's Gift of Fear on, uh, on your iPod and listen to it on the way out.
1: Diffuse your whole movie.
0: <laughs>
1: so go and check out the Gift of Fear or any other title on Audible today. Your membership will also include a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal in daily audio digest form. When you go and sign up, use our URL, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Okay, back to Cabin yeah so let's get to the last section, and let's assume you know that listeners have, have seen this last section let's assume that listeners have seen this last section. This is, I think where all the arguments about the movie come in mm-hmm. and, and to me, the last third of the movie didn't really come together and really kind of disappointed me, but it wasn't because of the final twist, which we'll get to. It yeah. was more because of how the pacing and the rhythm of the movie just just started to slow down to a crawl at that point. So then I can't remember exactly how they get in it, but they get into an elevator shaft, right. Mm-hmm. The the two survivors at this point, who, who are Dana, the good girl, and, the, and stoner. the stoner guy who comes back. We thought he was really great.
0: That guy Fran is. Fran awesome. Kranz, who
1: plays him, is wonderful. Yeah. yeah, he's really funny. He's sort of, a, I was saying in my review, he's sort of a living Shaggy from Scooby Doo, yeah, right? Exactly. He's like a live action Shaggy. He's uh, sort he's of smart like really, despite yeah. himself, right? I mean, he makes the dumbest decisions, but yet he's the one who manages to survive. And
0: he's kind of got that, that archetypal uh, one of the stoner archetypes of the guy who's kind of more philosophical than he intends to and in, like his stonerness kind of makes him more observant and more uh, able to pick up on things than everybody else.
1: Right. And in fact, all of his paranoia turns out to be completely borne right. out by reality. So so those two have survived at this point, and they get into this kind of strange elevator shaft, and they descend into this world that is part of this complex where Whit, Whitford mm-hmm. and Jenkins have been working from. And then there's this long kind of set piece that's all about archetypes, essentially mm-hmm. about fear archetypes. So the the elevator is descending, and in each new floor that they hit, there'll be new kind of monsters of the subconscious. Some of whom are really beautifully designed and mm-hmm. imagined. They kind of remind me of Guillermo del Toro, kind yeah, of yeah, Pan's Labyrinth style monsters. And that's what I
0: that's what I really liked is when they finally like dispensed with like the pretense of this has to be both a horror movie and a meta horror movie at the same time and met up that it was i felt like the movie that's when the movie was enjoying itself the most of showing this world that they you kind of realize that the characters could pick or had earlier picked their fate and like the object that they had touched in the basement that happened to be this diary that resurrected this family of hillbilly zombies could have easily been like you know like a, a an old doll that might have resurrected like a, a the ring style like creepy ghost child or you know some each monster
1: had its corresponding kind of archetypal like kind object of in the basement yeah right.
0: uh and there in the the, the, horror, the classic horror movie thing of their, their own curiosity or their refusal to pay heed to warnings allowed them to choose their destiny and, like, m- make it so they deserve it. You know, they read the Latin, so the zombies resurrect.
1: And, see, all of that, to me, it's sort of like, on paper, it's fantastic. And it could have led to this really great kind of philosophical puzzle of a denouement. Mm-hmm. And instead, I felt like all that happened when they descended in this cool elevator with weird creatures on every floor trying to get at them and then finally were released and released and then finally we're released into this complex where, you know, the, all the, the, the beasts were set loose. I mean, it was just sort of standard blood and guts mayhem. It wasn't the case, for example, that, I don't know, each character had some specific fear that they had to conquer mm-hmm. symbolically. It was a little bit true of Bradley Whitford and his sad ending, which was that he kept dreaming of seeing a merman the yeah. whole time. Why can't we see a merman in our lineup of, of imaginary creatures and kind of pushing for the merman angle? And then, of course, in the end, he's killed by a rogue merman.
0: And I kind of love that element of it because it just just takes a nosedive into seeing all this stuff. I kind of felt like there's a great shot where it kind of pans out from the elevator system and you just see the two main characters who survived in this endless void of thousands and thousands of different terrible monsters and they're all trapped in a single anonymous glass cage among these. I kind of thought that it was just going to pan out and end there. But instead, as you said, they they get away down into a control room. And are holed up by you know, um, technician guards trying to get at them and they just release all the monsters. And it's like a 15-minute bloodbath of just everybody getting ripped apart by every imaginable, imaginable kind of different horror movie thing, which I thought was incredibly fun to watch. It was just like really delightful to see all these monsters – Existing in the same space and doing their thing, and I thought the movie was just having a great time with itself. Oh, God!
1: See, to me, it was it was more like that shot that you describe of the camera slowly pulling back and mm-hmm. the, and the huge labyrinth of monsters was fantastic. And if I'd seen that in a preview, I, I would have thought, I can't wait to see what happens mm-hmm. and how each of those monsters kind of gets gets to have its own specific revenge or its own specific comeuppance or whatever. And instead, it just sort of seemed like all those monsters were just released into a big, <laughs> I don't know, like whirling blender blade that yeah. chopped them all to bits.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's part of the um, you know the same like quick and dirty like it's you know the movie's like barely ninety minutes long and it's at that point like all all the cards are on the table you know what the technicians were doing or I guess we haven't described what the technicians are doing the greater setup as it's revealed is that these technicians need to sacrifice these people once a year to uh, appease some almost Lovecraftian elder gods that live below the earth that the man yearly blood sacrifices. This is all explained
1: to, be, to us by yeah. Sigourney Weaver, yeah, incidentally, and the, and the, and who, who like, does like a surprise cameo at the yeah.
0: end. Um,
1: and so it's essentially a sacrifice, a religious sacrifice, yeah. which if you're at all kind of cognizant of, of that archetype, you, you're aware of halfway through the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're sort of showing those um, like bas-reliefs on the wall that yeah. the blood slowly fills as each, each person dies. So it's yeah. like the, uh, the the sculpture of the slug gets filled up first and then the, the jock. And you, so you're sort of aware that there's some kind of a symbolic value to the deaths, I think, halfway through the movie. Yeah. So I didn't think the Sigourney Weaver reveal was extremely satisfying. And so the final twist, if I can reconstruct it properly, really, is that Kristen Connolly, the girl playing Dana, and Fran Kranz, the stoner guy, what's the stoner character's name? Marty? Marty's Marty. Something like that. Are are in this room where the, the sacrificial bas-reliefs are carved, right, and where Sigourney Weaver has revealed the truth about the gods that they're supposed to be sacrificed to, and she essentially tells them, although I don't know why you would believe her as a source on this, that the world will end, right? That the, mm-hmm. the, the whole world as we know it will end if they don't participate and, and offer themselves up for sacrifice.
0: And, yeah, and it's something like one of them could survive. It's like either four pe- four or five people need to die. And then there's like maybe a moment where we're like, well, maybe one of them will kill each other to save the world. And then they end up just pushing <laughs> Sigourney Weaver into a, a an endless pit of churning elder gods.
1: And essentially allowing the world to end mm-hmm. is the idea, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of the stoner's solution, basically. Yeah. And in fact, they split a joint as they're sitting there waiting for the world to, to to end. And and essentially they just kind of write it off. And doesn't she say something like...
0: We like... Uh, like, so yeah, something about like, it's time for somebody else to get a go at this world anyway.
1: Yeah, so they just kind of give up on the world and the world ends. And to me, I mean, people think when I object to the ending that it's it's the nihilism of of, of this let the world end that I object to, but it's not at all. It was just more the slackness of the plotting mm-hmm. all around that part so that the final twist didn't feel that satisfying. I admit that I would have liked it better. I think I thought it was going to end a few seconds earlier than it did and that instead of, you know, the, the camera starting to quake and us getting the sense that indeed now the world is, I don't know, blowing to bits or something, that maybe they would just sit there Smoking a joint, saying, "We don't know if the world's going to end or not. We yeah. don't know if Sigourney Weaver, Weaver. We don't. We don't know if Sigourney Weaver was bullshitting us, but we're just going to sit here and you know enjoy a spliff in our possibly last moments. That I think would have been a nicer and more yeah. ambiguous ending. But my real problem isn't with the last few seconds; it's, it's with, with the with last, that, like, the 20, last minutes. twenty minutes. Yeah. Um,
0: so I think overall, we have a pretty similar idea of this movie of like clever, ultimately not satisfying as a horror movie but kind of fun as like a a meditation on horror movies and fear that does take a nosedive into absurdity of like kind of gruesome absurdity in the last 20 minutes which depending on your temperament is either eye-rolling or uh satisfying
1: maybe yeah it wasn't the absurdity even i wish the ending had been more absurd it wasn't and it wasn't the gruesomeness either it was the Narrative staticness is, yeah. is how I would describe it. You know, it's sort of like they got to this really cool place where there's this really cool visual idea was set into place. And then all that happened there was just sort of like everyone running bad. around and, yeah, dying. Yeah. But on the other hand, I have to say that so this movie has to have something going for it because the audience, when I saw it and everybody that I've talked to has agreed, absolutely loved it. The audience went mm-hmm. crazy. It was, it was such a great crackle of energy in the, in the, yeah. in the crowd.
0: And it does for the majority of it keep a good balance of just like clipping along and pacing pretty quickly and spreading enough like okay what's going on with these guys in this place and like oh my gosh that guy just got his arm ripped off like tension of, of at least that if the specific uh scares or horror, horror elements of it aren't the scariest or most horrifying definitely something to check out if you're interested in uh in riffs on the horror genre
1: yeah, and, and in Joss Whedon in general. I mean, yep. I'm glad I saw it. It's not a movie that I would probably flock to, were I not a movie <laughs> critic. But it made me think about horror movie, and I mean, it made me think about horror movies in a slightly different way, and made me look forward to the next thing that Joss does.
0: Yeah, Whedon DNA coursing through it, uh, if not as fully realized of a twist on a genre as some of. Um, Whedon's other work.
1: Although we should, we should remark, I don't think we ever noted this, that it was directed not by Whedon, but by Drew Goddard, who was one of his collaborators on Buffy.
0: Who was a writer on Buffy, a writer on Lost, and then ended up uh, directing Cloverfield.
1: Yeah, it feels like something that two guys might have holed up in a cabin in the woods and smoked mm-hmm. a joint and written together in a weekend. And, and, I, and I like that kind of collaborative and, and tossed-off feel of it.
0: Um, I don't know if this has a space in the, in this podcast, but I'm, I'll go through it anyway. Because I mentioned this to you, that the, that night after seeing Cabin in the Woods, I went home and watched a true gem of riffing on horror movies on Netflix called um, Tucker and Dale versus Evil.
1: Oh, yeah, you did mention that. Um,
0: which, if you have any interest in Cabin in the Woods, if you saw Cabin in the Woods and liked it, I would say run, don't walk to this movie. It's a Cabin in the Woods horror movie uh, told from the perspective of – the demented hillbillies that the college kids encounter in the first five minutes—it's like the college kids meet these two hillbilly guys, get creeped out by them, and then you follow the hillbillies and find out they're just two like really sweet guys who want to go to this fix up this cabin and go fishing. And through an increasingly elaborate farcical series of misunderstandings, uh, end up seeming like psychotic murderers to the college kids who kind of turn on. Uh, These two Tucker and Dale guys, and it's just, like, really funny, really well plotted. Actually, a lot of—I don't know if you would call it, like, scary in the sense of, like, monsters coming out, but, like, really surprising action sequences, gory, uh, and just great lovable characters and acting. It's a really, really awesome— little, I don't think, super well-known movie.
1: Oh, I'm all the gladder that you came in to spoil, so you could recommend that, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. All right, well, Chris, it's been a delight spoiling these two Joss Whedon movies with you in a row today, The Avengers and, and Cabin in the Woods, so thanks so much for coming in.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Our producer and today's guest is Chris Wade. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.